Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books Network. We're at the New Books in South Asian Studies. I am your host, Ali Mohsen. Today we have with us Jason Keith Fernandez, who is the author of Citizenship in a Caste Polity, Religion, Language and Belonging in Goa. The book came out a few months ago with Orient Black Swan in India. Currently, Jason Keith Fernandez is a researcher at the Center for Research and Anthropology at the University Institute of Lisbon. The book, Citizenship in a Caste Polity, Religion, Language and Belonging in Goa, weaves together multiple disciplinary, conceptual, historical and empirical threads to give us an insight into how citizenship and political subjectivities are constructed, negotiated and experienced in Goa especially when it comes to fixing and contesting identities around a language. Lucidly written and brilliantly argued, this book is a unique, critical, historical, and ethnographic account of the politics of Konkani language and will be valuable to scholars of history, political science, sociology, anthropology, citizenship studies, and cultural studies. And beyond that, also to the policymakers working on state and citizenship policies. Hello, Jason. Welcome to New Books Network. Uh, hi, Mohsin, and thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot for writing this brilliant book and also for engaging with us here at the New Books Network today. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm very flattered that um, you like the book. So the first question here at New Books Network is usually biographical. Uh-huh. Uh, please tell us a little about your personal life story, especially like your personal and intellectual trajectory, mm-hmm. uh, especially in relations with the research that eventually became this book. Right. So um, biographically speaking, to just give you a sense of my uh, intellectual uh, trajectory, I my, my first degree was a bachelor's in law. Uh, and this will become very, I mean, this is, should be obvious when one reads the book. Um, I did a degree in law and because I was somewhat, um, I had some, I had uh, problems with the way in which law was, was studying society. I kept looking and I, I found eventually um, a master's in the sociology of law at the International Institute for the Sociology of Law in the Basque country in Spain. So um, this was part of my shift eventually towards anthropology which is what I did my um, doctoral work in. In fact, the book is a result of my doctoral work. So in that sense, I've kind of, I've moved from, uh, one could say, pure law towards uh, the anthropological study of law. Um, mm. So this is my, this would be my intellectual history. Um, in terms of personal life, I grew up in Goa. I... Um, until I left Goa to enter the law school in Bangalore. 
Um, and subsequently, I have moved from place to place, whether it's uh, the Basque country in Spain for the, for the Masters or uh, for the 10 years that I spent in, well, 10 and counting years that I've spent in Portugal, having first gone there to um, start my doctoral work. In terms of the way in which the my personal history has impacted on the book, I think the first... Um, the first impact would be in an appreciation of the liminal or the appreciation of the liminal subject. Mm-hmm. I'm the product of a mixed marriage. So my father is gone and my mother, though she has gone roots, uh, belongs to a community known as the Manglorians. So these are uh, Catholics, Konkani speaking Catholics who migrated from uh, Goa, from, from, the Portuguese, from the Portuguese state of Goa perhaps in the um, 17th century. Um, I could get the century wrong. But so have been and moved into South Canada, where they established themselves. So um, growing up in Goa in the 80s, um, when we were in some ways still fresh, freshly integrated into India, uh, was not easy. Um, I think... A number of, especially the groups that uh, my father hailed from, uh, were I think still insecure about their location in the new order. So Goanness was something that was very uh, was very robustly defined and defended even. So belonging was sometimes could sometimes be difficult because one came from this mixed marriage and. Um, so I think this gave me a good, solid appreciation of people who would would see themselves as Goan, but uh, are not allowed to be defined as Goan. In fact, one of the um, words, the terms that in Goa we use for um, that we use is for the 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 bylaw or the outsider. In English, it's, this is the word that's used, the outsiders. So who are they? Oh, they are outsiders. Um, so this sense of the outsider is very, very strong in Goa. It, and and surprisingly, it, it continues to be, uh, st- well, not surprisingly, but it continues to have grown in, in strength, which I think also uh, talks about the, the discomfort of Goa's integration into, into India. So anyway, this is the first bit of being liminal in, in Goan society. Uh, the second thing was already from a very young age, let's say from perhaps the late 80s, I was already aware that of the growth of Hindu nationalism in Goa uh, and the way in which Catholics were being pushed into a corner. Um, just as a personal anecdote, I'd, I had never thought that I would wind up an anthropologist. Uh, and uh, when I started out my higher education in law, this was the last thing I wanted to do. I actually wanted to be an archaeologist. And um, the advice that I was given to dissuade me from becoming an archaeologist was, uh, well, at that time, there was only one possibility to gain a livelihood um, as an archaeologist, and that was in the Archaeological Survey, uh, Archaeological Survey of India, and the advice was: listen, uh, listen, Baba, 
you um, you are a Catholic and there are no op- uh, options for us. You will be pushed into a corner and uh, you will not be able to grow in your career. So rightly or wrongly, uh, this was the advice given. And uh, surprisingly, this is also the kind of um, um, rhetoric that I heard when I was doing my research, uh, doing the research uh, for what would eventually become this book. Uh, what is left for us here? Yeah, there are no options for us. It's better for us to leave and go. Um, this is a Catholic, a Goan Catholic speaking. So once again, um, uh, this is uh, personal history, the way in which it ties in with this book. And finally, um, ever since my um, my masters, where I spent time in Spain, uh, spent time in the Basque country, and and. And, and, and saw the way in which the Basque country has troubles integrating with, with Spain. Um, and the, the, the importance of legal histories to these kinds of uh, difficulties uh, made me aware that it was important for me to be more attentive to go on legal history. And the reasons why um, Goa fits so problematically and difficult uh, in such a difficult way into the Indian Republic. Um, so what I wanted to do, what was very clear, was I wanted to craft a perspective that is honest about Goan legal history and the way in which it participates in India. So I would say that these are three different ways in which my personal life uh, might um, integrate with, uh, with, with the research that eventually became this book. <clears throat> Thank you very much for that, that, that context. I think that's a good uh, background uh, to this book and, and, and also to our conversation today. So my next question will be, uh, what do you think is the primary argument of the book? The conceptual thread that binds together the complexity of the arguments and socio-historical analysis that it uh, undertakes? Mm. So, um, Mohsin, one of the things that has annoyed me ever since the book has come out is the fact that it is being seen as a book on Goa. Now, this is not surprising because uh, Goa is seen as this small place, peripheral to India, uh, and therefore, assumedly, peripheral to South Asia. Uh, and the study of South Asia. Um, so what I'd like, maybe when I talk about the primary argument of the book, uh, what I'd like to stress is that, yes, this may be a book about Goa, but Goa is merely the field. Yeah, Goa is merely the terrain through which I want to intervene in a much larger field of study. And that field of study would be um, citizenship theory. So this is really a work on citizenship. Whereas where Goa is is the field. Secondly, this is a work on citizenship, but it is also more particularly an inquiry into the nature of citizenship in a perfectly uh, secular liberal state, that is India, right? Um, so at the end of the day, when I make this in- inquiry into the nature of the citizenship experience in um, in this assumedly secular liberal state, what is, what is the argument I'm making? 
The argument I'm making would be that uh, one India is not so much a um, is is not it does not really operate as secular, and nor is it very much a liberal state, right? Um, the argument I have really relied on in terms of a, 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 a one column to around which I can structure the work is uh, Partha Chatterjee's idea of um, political society, right? So he introduces this distinction between civil society, which he says is the realm of those who enjoy rights, and uh, political society, political society being the space of those who do not enjoy rights, who are citizens merely uh, on paper or in theory, but don't in fact enjoy the rights of a citizen. Uh, all that they enjoy are concessions. So uh, I, I, I um, distinguish my work from that, or, or I, I differ with, with Chatterjee, uh, because based on some of the critiques that have been made of him that I support, you cannot have a civil society and a political society operating at the same time. You can either have civil society or you can have political society. And I would argue that what obtains in India is a political society. And more particularly, what obtains in India is a caste polity, right? Uh, and so the argument in India, uh, in the, sorry, the argument in this book is that the experience of citizenship in Goa, which is the space which I'm studying to um, understand India, is, uh, is the experience of being in a caste polity, where if you are not dominant caste Hindu, you are um, not you don't embody the ideal, the ideal image of the uh, of the citizen subject, right? So um, I think this would be the 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 the, the thread that runs through the book, um, and I'm sure we can elaborate on this as we go along. But I yeah, um, but actually no. Let me just hold on. There is um, so if, if one one aspect of the work is citizenship. Uh, a second aspect would be, as I've already pointed out, trying to work out, work away from the British Indian framework that is placed yeah. over so much of the work on South Asia and of and on and on Goa. So, what I've tried to do in this work is to rewrite the histories of Konkani and Goans that uh, that are dominant histories of Konkani that are written. Uh, Konkani, of course, is the language. Um, spoken in Goa, the language through which, uh, the poli uh, 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 around the politics of which I am um, seeking to talk about citizenship. So most of the histories of Konkani that obtain take British Indian uh, frameworks as a given. So British Indian and therefore Indian nationalist frameworks as a given. And I'm trying to correct these, uh, these narratives. Um, and I should also point out that I've relied greatly on a couple of works, little more than a couple of works, that are already trying to do this, trying to get out of the frame of British India. Um, the first book that I really should mention is that of Rochelle Pinto, um, which has this great title, Between, uh, Between Empires. Um, I've relied also on the work of uh, Raghu Trishur, 
um, and also a more recent work by Parag Parabo, which looks at uh, which, which was also uh, published by Orient Black Swan and talks about uh, the politics under the first chief minister um, of Goa under um, Indian rule. So yeah, that would be, I think, the the framework of the of the book. So moving on from this, uh, I was thinking of asking you about. Like in the book, you briefly mentioned that you started off with a slightly different project in mind, but then gravitated towards uh, exploring how the non-Hindus come to experience the citizenship in the Republic of India. With this in mind, I would like to ask you, what was the moment of discovery, so to speak, for you, when you realized that there was something here that was not being uh, you know, uh, given the careful attention that it deserved, uh, but 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 uh, needed to be investigated. Um, I think I'm going to have to um, backtrack for a while now. Um, so when I started out my doctoral work, my doctoral work was this really ambitious project that wanted to look at Goans in three spaces. Um, Goa, Lisbon, and uh, and and London, and try to see how um, they were engaging as citizens in these three spaces. And the point of uh, departure was to be symbols of the Portuguese flag or the Portuguese state that at that time, let's say this is now in 2008, um, you would find on a number of uh, bikes and cars, these little stickers, bumper stickers, which have the Portuguese flag or the uh, Portuguese coat of arms. So uh, my idea was to go and speak with people who own these vehicles and then figure out uh, what were the statements they were making about, uh, about uh, themselves, about their, their legal identity, about the way in which they engaged with citizenship. The context over here is that um, when uh, India annexed Goa in 1961, uh, Goans were, in fact, citizens of Portugal, right? Uh, this is to yeah. distinguish them from, let's say, uh, British Indians who were never citizens of, uh, of the British state. They were merely subjects of the British crown. Um, so... Already you see you're in a completely different uh, framework. So um, India marches in, annexes Goa, gives Indian citizenship to Goans. But sometime, but, but the Portuguese recognize because of the nature of uh, Indian takeover of Goa, the Portuguese recognize that Goans continue to hold Portuguese citizenship, uh, which they continue to do they only need to reinscribe themselves as citizens. So um, this is basically what I was, I was trying to, I, I, what I realized was that perhaps the symbols of the Portuguese flags was a way to indicate that these were people who were reclaiming a Portuguese citizenship. And then I would trace backwards and go either to Portugal or to London where these uh, people were, would eventually go to work. Now, when I started approaching people, I realized that a number of these people, contrary to my expect, initial expectations, 
a number of these people were not persons who came from what in Goa we call Portuguese-speaking background, right? These were persons who were from the working classes and castes and were making perhaps a new uh, relationship with Portugal. Um, And as I was trying to do this, I realized that um, there was no way for me to, there was no background literature on this group. Uh, A lot, as as Raghut Richur points out in his work, a lot of the work uh, that is done on Goa, uh, at least as he says, sociological and anthropological work, tends to try to support the nation-building narrative, right? So a lot of it works, tries to point out uh, how how Indian Goans are, or how Indian, um, that is to say, how how Hindu, um, Catholicism in Goa is, right? So all of this is either an Indian perspective or a Brahmanical perspective, and conversations are largely with Catholic dominant castes who have a caste history through which they can integrate themselves into the Indian state. There's almost nothing um, on working caste Catholics. So I realized that I was floundering and I needed to... So at this moment, as I was floundering, I was invited to be the chair to a a debate that was happening um, in Goa. And this was this was about the Konkani language and the demand for the Roman script. And it was at this moment, as I was chair of this uh, discussion, that I saw the whole field, as it were, unfold in front of me. I, from my my uh, my perch up on the by the, by the speaker, I could see the various groups and the kind of politics that was playing out. And I realized that this was my this was my entry point that this is what was going to allow me to understand the the dynamics in the field. Uh, and I really uh, don't regret picking up that, that, that entry point because I think it has allowed me to actually understand the way in which caste um, intersects with, um, with, with, with political identity in Goa. And um, I think this is... Um, this is a, a a good base work from which to proceed, even if I say so myself. Um, so yeah, this would be it. I think uh, this is the job of the anthropologist at the end of the day. You go in with an idea, but you also allow the field to speak to you and to redirect you in another another um, in another direction if necessary. My next question is then about the historical context mm-hmm. to the current politics of identity claims and contestations around the Konkani language and about uh, how Konkani came to define the Goan identity and the Goan claims to modernity. Mm-hmm. Particularly interesting here, I think, is the ways in which languages, castes, religions intersect when it comes to defining who might authentically be a Goan and which language, dialect, or even a script uh, is deemed to consolidate that identity. So, so Mohsin, I think perhaps the, 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 the best place to start would be to say that in 1987, um, the Konkani language was recognized as the 
was through a, a legislation, the Official Language Act, as uh, the official language of Goa, right? So the question, yeah. therefore, is how do we come to this point where Konkani is identified as the official language of Goa? The story begins already when Goa is a part of the Portuguese state. So we have this Portuguese civil servant who comes over from the from the metropole, that is from from Portugal. Um, and what he does when he comes to Goa is to emulate the best practices in terms of colonialism, romanticism, and Orientalism, right? Which is to identify a language for the local. Um, this has to be seen in the larger uh, South Asian uh, uh, context. Now, I'd like to refer once again to Rochelle Pinto's uh, book and especially her phrase, Between Empires, where she says that Goa, even though it was formerly a Portuguese territory, lived its experience was living in the shadow of the British Empire, which was hegemonic. And the British Empire is the one that is setting the intellectual agendas, right? So in, the, uh, in British India, you have the identification of various groups by languages. Um, based on this, you have these uh, dominant castes across South Asia who then try to appropriate a language as theirs and try to define the language uh, based on the way in which they're speaking. Now, this is being helped by Orientalists who, in any case, were working with, with largely with Brahmin groups uh, and using Brahmanical uh, language forms as the ideal language form of this particular uh, language group, right? So something similar starts happening in Goa, which is you have this Portuguese administrator, Cunha Rivara, um, indicating what is... Um, that um, that Konkani is the language of, of the people. This gets picked up by a group of uh, local elites, and these are um, essentially the uh, mixed-race elites, uh, what we call the descendants, right? The mixed-race elites, or at least a small group among them, pick this up and try to promote Konkani as um, a language in Goa. This does not, however, get very much traction among the elites because on the one hand, you have the, uh, the Hindu elites who have embraced Marathi because uh, Marathi is... Well, they were struggling to get Marathi recognized as a language and they had only then recently gotten Marathi recognized. Uh, Marathi also offered scope in terms, if you got state support for education in Marathi, uh, you had greater opportunities within British India, within the Bombay presidency. So the Hindu elites are not interested in any way in Konkani. In fact, Konkani is seen as the language of the, of the polluted Christian, right? So there's no way uh, they might want to associate with Konkani. The Catholic elites, on the other hand, that is the Catholic uh, native elites, um, are not interested in Konkani either because they identify with Portuguese. Um, so Konkani really has no takers at this point of time, except for the working castes and classes who adopt Konkani, both not only in, the, in their um, 
in their personal relations, but also to produce uh, literature, whether this is novels or uh, uh, plays or, or, even mu- or even lyrics for music. So in the uh, 1900s, if there is a group that is producing Konkani, uh, it is this group of the laboring castes in Catholic, largely in Bombay, but also in Goa. Uh, these are people who have gained an education, have learned to write through the parochial schools, the parish schools that the church had set up. Uh, and so they write it, they write Konkani in the Roman script that they have learned. Uh, one should also recognize the role of the church in producing the Konkani language. At this point of time, I just want to point out that all too often, uh, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, it was uh, Dilip Menon who speaks about uh, so much of work on South Asia as being uh, being dry because it does not recognize the operation of caste, right? So you cannot have a language in South Asia as you do in Europe because each caste is speaking its own form of the language and is defending its form of the language, right? It will not share its language with the other caste. Uh, just as the Hindu elites in Goa wouldn't want to share Konkani with the Catholics, precisely because of the imputation of being um, uh, of being polluted. So it is the Catholic Church, it is the missionaries who come to Goa uh, already in the in the 16th century, who identify a language form, produce a grammar. Now a, the production of a grammar is, is critical because it allows various groups to learn this grammar. It stabilizes the the language form, right? And allows the production of a public sphere, which in those days would have been the paraliturgical uh, sphere, um, uh, paraliturgical um, Catholic sphere, right? So in the church is where you have this language being used and promoted. Um, Catechisms are written in, in, in Konkani. So I would argue that Konkani in, this, in the sense of a modern language, a modern language that can be shared by various people, is a production of the Catholic Church. Um, so this would be the, the kind of historical context. The problem emerges when Konkani is adopted by um, a Saraswat reformer, uh, Varde Valaulikar, who is recognized today as, uh, as the father of, of, of Konkani, of the Konkani language. This is a man who, to give him his credit, pushes really for the adoption of Konkani by by the various jatis who today see themselves as as Saraswat. But he is pushing this language for two reasons. One, to unite these various jatis into a single umbrella, which is uh, is the uh, Gaur Saraswat Samaj, um, to give them a common identity an identity that they can use to fight against the Marathi-speaking Brahmins who dominate in Bombay. So this would be the uh, the Konkanas Brahmins, uh, the Chitpavan, who uh, who essentially reject these um, various Jati who claim Saraswat status as being Brahmin. He this, and also there are also other Brahmins in 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 Karnataka who who, who basically reject the Brahmin status of this group. So the idea is to produce a language that can unite them and will also be uh, sufficiently Sanskritic, right? So the adoption of Konkani to, to give a corporate identity. 
And secondly, in the um, early 1900s is when these dominant castes across the peninsula are identifying languages and claiming uh, linguistic spaces where they can dominate. So if the uh, Maharashtrian Brahmins are claiming Maharashtra and there's no space for these Konkani-speaking uh, jatis, uh, they need to create their own space. And so you have uh, Vardhe Valaulikar working within a larger uh, framework, which is the attempt to create a space for Konkani-speaking Brahmins, right? So this is where the whole uh, identification of Konkani as a Sanskritic language picks up, it gains force. And then Konkani begins to be the marker of Goanness, in a sense, once India takes over, once India annexes um, Goa. There was the fear of being merged into Maharashtra, into the state of Maharashtra. And so you needed to um, create your own regional identity because this is also soon after the linguistic reorganization of states. So if you can claim that Konkani is our identity, you can stave off the claim of being integrated into Maharashtra. Uh, what is interesting about these attempts is that the literary works produced by these working caste and class Goan Catholics is used to buttress the claims in the uh, uh, in the the, the Sahitya Academy, um, Goan laboring Goan uh, Catholics are used to push the the the, the political mobilization, but um, the people who who define what Konkani is are the Sanskritic lobby, um, and this is the the Konkani that get that that gets recognized. So uh, essentially what you have in 1987 then is um, as this as this uh, this this priest who is who's a uh, activist for the roman script argues uh, you have pedro who does all the work and pandu who gets all the benefits so the the, the catholic is completely excluded because subsequent to the language act being passed um, these groups now say that, well, the Roman script, company written in the Roman script is not the official form and therefore it cannot be recognized for any kind of state support. So you have a suffocation of, uh, of the company language um, as spoken and produced by, um, by Catholics. So I think this would be the, the, the context for the work that I studied. So my my next question is about your engagement with and 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 your critique of Partha Chatterjee's work, right? Uh, which, as you mentioned uh, rightly, that it, it's it's at the heart of uh, of the book. It's it's an argumentative force and uh, it's a conceptual field. And the book, I think, is a brilliant reflection on the notion of subalternity especially in your dealing with Partha Chatterjee's distinction between civil and political society in the context of uh, post-colonial democracies. For example, when you, when you make a similar distinction between the politics that is articulated in terms of rights and the politics that finds articulation in strategies and maneuvers. And uh, you also argue that such binary thinking might be 
useful in making sense of a lot of what you encounter in the intersecting politics of class, caste, language, dialect, script, and identity, and, and, and a whole range of, of these issues. But also, more importantly, you argue that in many ways, it falls short of grasping so much that goes into that complex politics. Would you please like to elaborate a bit on that? Sure. Um, I've, I've already indicated that uh, that I, uh, my problems and my critique of Chatterjee's work, um, which is essentially it's too economistic and um, it ignores caste entirely. Um, but I think the problem with Chatterjee, with, with this formulation, uh, as I studied it, is essentially that it falls into this modern trap of binaries, right? Um, and uh, I think this is something that we need to, to get out of. I think it's great to be able to lay out a field and then say, okay, this is the way it works. But then we need to map out the way in which these, these, these various binaries combine and the way in which they operate in, in, the, in the social field. Which is why, along with uh, Chatterjee's uh, political civil society binary, I also adopted the the categories formulated by this Portuguese uh, social scientist uh, Boaventura de Souza Santos, uh, where he speaks about uh, interlegality. So he identifies a, a range of six spaces which have their own legalities, uh, and I thought that this was way more helpful in trying to uh, understand the way in which the social field plays out, largely because you don't have the, the, the binary anymore, right? And um, also it worked to my understanding of what citizenship is, which is um, the creating a space for maneuver or creating a room for maneuver. And uh, you create this room for maneuver at various levels. It could be... Um, in within the family, within the community, um, within in the marketplace. So what you have, therefore, in, in, in my understanding of citizenship is not merely this relationship between the individual or community with the state, but this host of relationships that, that take place in which the state is a, an important player but and, and a dominant player, but not the only player. Right. So everyone is trying to push and create space for themselves. So you have a much more complex web of, of uh, social relations. Um, so I think this helped supplement uh, Chatterjee's idea and made the um, made allowed me to analyze the, the field with, with some complexity and integrate in this way caste into my into my analysis. Um, so, so this would be it. I think. I, I think as as social sci uh, scientists, especially at a time when things are moving so fast, where change is so constant, I I think we need to find ways in which our work can capture the dynamism of the social world, rather than box them up neatly. Boxing is really great to start out and to get a conceptual idea of the field, but then we need to try and work. Uh, with, 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 with welding these various uh, boxes together. Um, and I hope, uh, I mean, it's, it's left for the reader to decide. 
but i hope i've i've made uh, done a good job of trying to weld these various uh, uh, groups together and show how it operates how this complex network uh, operates in practice but my my next question is about uh, uh, the emotional and affective side of the citizenship experience which uh, i think is 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 also one of the one of the more important uh, part of the work so while most of the book deals with how the subaltern classes and castes of goan catholics experience and contest citizenship the last chapter is a very insightful meditation on the emotional and affective side of political subjectivity among these groups how are emotions such as shame and humiliation as you suggest experienced and articulated and how do they play out in the larger politics of making claims vis-a-vis a peculiarly goan identity so so mosin you know i as i told you earlier i started out on a completely different uh, frame um and when i was doing my my primary research uh, or, or rather my my just getting a sense of the field everyone was speaking about citizenship as practice right so being a good uh, doctoral student said well i will also go and look at citizenship as practice once i got into the field however and um, and because i i wanted to and i had to take caste seriously i realized that there was something else that was going on it was not just practice Uh, to put it in the terms of the work of uh, Veronique Benny, who's run this really great work about uh, about um, citizenship and the body, um, the body is not merely a performing body. The body is is uh, it's also a feeling body, right? And this is the body that is present in politics. It's not some uh, remote, abstract. Um, individual who who doesn't feel but only thinks right it's the entire person that is involved in politics and especially if you're going to deal with caste and caste was so obvious i i'll just give you this anecdote uh, if you remember i mentioned that i started out on this project after being the chair uh, at a debate on on the konkani language and its politics and in that session uh, there was this one uh, individual who was so riled up by um by this uh, bahujan activist he stood up and he said essentially you monkey are you teaching us the vedas because this 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 activist had made a reference to the vedas um i picked up on that instantly and i realized oh my god this is about caste as well right and from there on the it just kind of I I I I can't say it didn't unwind but I, I it was the seed on which I was able to collect this entire spool and and create a ball um so there was one uh, way in which like it was very clear that we, what we're speaking about is attempts at gaining dignity as i was hanging out with these uh, catholic activists uh, theatris theatris are um, uh, essentially um persons who produce uh, a company uh, a theater the playwrights what i realize is that it's also a demand for dignity they're not merely looking to be integrated into the state 
This is, of course, uh, an essential part of what, what they want, support from the state for their work. But they're also looking for dignity. I had um, essentially Brahmin, Catholic Brahmin uh, priests who were opposed to these uh, working caste persons. The Cat- uh, these Catholic Brahmin priests were supporting uh, uh, the Nagari script, which is the officially recognized script for Konkani. Uh, whereas these Catholic activists were demanding the recognition of the Roman script. So these Catholic priests would say, what culture do they have? Referring to the to the cultural and literary productions of these uh, working uh, caste uh, persons. Um, so it was about humiliation. And uh, what was being attempted was to gain dignity and to gain respect. Um and and this 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 shaming would happen in very sophisticated ways actually for example i remember this one uh, individual telling me how he had gone to for a job interview um an interview for a position in the the go university and um, he goes into the interview and the the head of the panel says um, Babu, let's take his name, uh, Babu. He says, Babu, Amka Kite Sang, which is in Konkani, says, Babu, why don't you tell us something? Um, and this activist turns to me and he says, do you realize what was going on? And I was quite clueless. I said, no. Um, and he says, what they wanted me to do was to speak to them in Konkani so that they could determine my uh, the form of Konkani I was speaking in. Which, and this man is, 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 is not a Brahmin, right? He comes from a, a Catholic working caste. Yeah. Uh, and this was the basis on which he was denied the position, at least in, in, in his estimation. And I see no reason why I should uh, disbelieve him after having studied the field. Um, because the positions are given to persons who embody um, Brahmanical... Um, forms right this is something that i saw when i was working in the all india radio i i used to operate as a as a radio jockey um for the sins of all those who are listening to the radio but this is where i realized that a certain form of konkani was being pushed it it was a konkani that is spoken by um by the saraswats and uh, then is adopted by and and then in the second grade came the form of Konkani spoken by non uh, by by other Hindus, right? Non-Brahmin Hindus. And then, of course, the Konkani that is spoken by the Catholic working caste is essentially uh, pushed away as much as possible. So these are ways of shaming. And I think it opens up a different sense of the body for us. It identifies the body's because language in, in in this sense is embodied by the person who's speaking speaking it so if you if you are uh, alienating or you're or pushing away a certain kind of a language you're also pushing away the bodies that embody that form uh, so really what you have is the operation of is is the operation of caste these are various forms of uh, of untouchability right and I, and I'm, cl- I'm clear that untouchability has a very uh, um, a, a definite understanding, right? But I want to talk about this, uh, picking up on Ambedkar, I want to also speak about 
if untouchability is this really harsh form, um, caste is also about, um, let's say, the diminishing degrees as you go further up the scale of this untouchability practices. So, so what you have operating as a result of the elevation of this elevation of uh, the Brahmanical form is various forms of untouchability in practice, various forms of caste discrimination in practice, right? Uh, so this is essentially shaming. Uh, the, uh, an individual is not recognized as having human dignity, but is uh, is is determined on the on their proximity or distance from the Brahmanical ideal. Um, so this was the shaming that I experienced. Um, the claims of humiliation is the way to, uh, I, I follow. There is this great work uh, edited by Gopal Guru in which um, um, Palshikar makes this very uh, persuasive argument that humiliation is not something that happens, but humiliation is what happens when I turn around after being shamed, I turn around and say, this will not do when I recognize that I'm being shamed and, and refuse to take it. So what we have in among the, the, the groups that I was studying and working with is our claims of humiliation and the assertion that this will not go on, right? Um, so, so, so this was one way in which emotion came into the field because I was taking caste seriously. The other way in emotion comes in is when one refers when following romantic uh, models, one recognizes the language as a mother tongue. When one embodies the language as a mother, then one is a whole range of emotions of, uh, come into play based on how one treats one's mother, right? So we have to take care of her mother. We have to show obedience to her. We have a duty to her. And so if you don't speak your mother tongue, you're seen in some way as, um, as, not, as not respecting your mother. And there's a whole range of emotions that starts playing out. This is also something I picked up from um, uh, Benny's work, which I would really uh, encourage people to read. Um, and it, it, what I found really interesting, though, is that while in um, most places the language starts out as mother and in, and in and in south asia it becomes the mother uh, goddess even so you have uh, if you look at lisa mitchell's work which i which i also uh, referred to the telugu language is cast as a goddess in karnataka you have uh, kannada being placed as this goddess in goa you don't have the same uh, feature she just remains the mother but not doesn't become a goddess and i think this is largely because Company language activism relies on the energies and efforts of Catholics. And with Catholics, there's only so far you can do in terms of deification of a of a um, of an object. So this is why I think uh, Konkani remains as a mother and not as a doesn't transform into a mother goddess. So these were basically the the, the ways in which emotion I, I, I noticed emotion in the field. And I felt that if one is talking about citizenship uh, anthropologically, one has to be attentive not merely to this, this working body, but also to the feeling body. Yeah, this, I think, uh, focus on uh, the emotional and affective um, 
and bodily aspects of uh, of citizenship and political subjectivity, how how they are experienced and articulated. Uh, this was truly uh, like a refreshing thing to read for me as well, because uh, as you also said, it, it's something that uh, doesn't uh, receive the kind of attention that it should uh, receive, particularly uh, in in South Asian studies. Uh, so maybe then moving on from that, uh, I believe this is a brilliantly argued book that brings together a lot of conceptual threads, as I already said, to illuminate the broader politics of citizenship, identity, and political subjectivity, not only in Goa and in South Asia, but also everywhere in multicultural societies. So then coming uh, to towards our conclusion, I would say, I would like to ask you actually that in the light of uh, foregone discussion, if there is one idea that you think uh, should stay with the listeners and the future readers of the book, what would it be? Um, Mohsin, I think, I think what I would, uh, I would like uh, readers to take away is to really challenge the kind of methodological nationalism that infects South Asian studies. Everyone, oh, oh, I can't say everyone, forgive me, uh, but to a large extent, so many people take India as a given, right? And I just think that this is bad scholarship. If you refuse to see a world outside of India, right? Um, I think this is a serious problem and uh, this needs to be uh, uh, checked I mean, I mean, this is not some, I, especially in this uh, day and age, I need to, I need to hasten to argue that it's not some kind of anti-nationalist argument as much as an argument which could even benefit uh, the polity, the Indian polity, uh, because you shut so many doors when you refuse to, to get out of the methodological nationalism that structures your work. Um, what we would be doing if we looked outside of the methodological nationalism uh, would be to, in fact, open up opportunities for persons, whether in India or whether in South Asia. Uh, and I think this is something that I would really urge people to be attentive to is to just, I mean, and this is being part of my effort. I can look at India from a Goan perspective only because I I'm refusing uh, to uh, to accept the the methodological nationalism that has structured work on Goa thus far. So I think this is something that I would uh, that I would urge readers to be or, or listeners to be attentive to. So at the end, I would like to uh, ask you, mm -hmm. what are your current research interests and projects? What should we look out for in the next years? What's in the pipeline? Um, one, right now, I'm translating the biography of a Portuguese, uh, sorry, what am I saying? <laughs> a Konkani uh, novelist, uh, his, uh, uh, Bonavent Bonaventure de Pietro. Um, this this um, biography is really gold. Um, and I think, once again, is the voice, in, in some sense, the unmediated voice of the working caste uh, gone Catholic. Uh, when I finished my work, I felt at the end of the day, while I was attentive to cast, I was, I was honest to to what my uh, collaborators were, were saying, 
this was still the work of a dominant caste Catholic, right? And therefore, it was just like a, a, a dominant caste voice mediating their voices. This novel, I believe, really presents the voice of the the Catholic working caste person. And I hope to finish yeah. it um, perhaps um, by the middle of next year. So that's one work that I'm working on. Uh, more generally, I after my uh, this doctoral work, I was interested in the way in which the Catholic Church in India deals with Indian nationalism, and I think this is increasingly a problem for uh, for um, that that we need to engage with, especially because of the almost uh, the increasing militancy of uh, Indian or Hindu nationalism against uh, non-Hindu groups. In fact, this is one of the things I just like to point out that I thought was useful about my work is that it breaks up this Hindu-Muslim binary through which we study Indian secularism. Because um, if the Muslim is the other to the Hindu self, then any obsession with the with the Muslim, as, as happens with secularism in India, and this is not take away from the trials of Muslims in India. I'm completely sympathetic. But if you are obsessed with the Indian Muslim to the exclusion of other groups, then really what the debate is, is a debate about the Hindu self once again. The debate on secularism is a debate is, is a discourse on the Hindu self, which is why we need to focus on these non-Muslim, uh, non-Hindu min- uh, minoritized groups in India. Um, so anyway, so this work on the Catholic Church and the way in which it's engaging with nationalism is something that I've been working on as well. Um, and uh, finally, pushing this language of uh, against met- uh, methodological nationalism further, I've really been looking at empire and the way in which imperial languages actually offer space to groups that have currently been marginalized and imprisoned within within the nation state. Uh, it is very, very fashionable to use empire as shorthand for everything that is evil. But these are historically very narrow understandings of empire, understandings of empire that draw on the, largely on the British uh, understanding of empire, on late modern uh, uh, colonial empires. And this is really not, it does not exhaust the understanding of empire. So um, uh, the language of empire uh, of the imperial scale uh, definitely offers groups that have currently been marginalized, spaced, or as I would say, room to maneuver. And this is something that I'm working on. So, so yeah. That sounds really fascinating and promising. And I really look forward to reading more of your work. Thank you, Mosin. Thanks a lot, Jason, um, for engaging with us today. And also many thanks to all the listeners out there. Till next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye, and thank you for your patience.